Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the ongoing trouble brewing for members of Donald Trump's inner circle. There are explosive new details in the federal probe of Trump's little buddy, Florida Congressman Matt Gates, And we'll get to that flaming dumpster fire in just a minute. But first, there is new reporting out today that Trump's former TV and real life lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was warned by the FBI in 2019 that he was the target of Russian spies. Yes, that's the same Rudy Giuliani who spent years digging up dirt in Ukraine to smear Joe Biden and his son Hunter with dubious claims of impropriety. The story first broke in The Washington Post, which reports that the FBI told Giuliani that he was the target of a Russian influence operation aimed at circulating falsehoods intended to damage President Biden politically ahead of last year's election. The concern among U.S. intelligence was that Giuliani was being manipulated by the Russian government. However, The Post notes that Giuliani appears to have brazenly disregarded such fears. Even after he knew he was the target of Russian spies, he still traveled abroad to meet with a KGB-trained Ukrainian lawmaker, an individual named Andrei Derkach. And guess what? Lo and behold, it later turned out that Derkach actually was, quote, an active Russian agent. That's according to the Treasury Department, which sanctioned Derkach in September of 2020 for foreign interference to undermine the 2020 U.S. presidential election. In other words, we now know that the FBI clearly had good reason to warn Giuliani. But rather than heed their advice at the time, he cozied up even more with the Russian agent, even inviting him on his podcast to make additional allegations against Joe Biden. Giuliani, who, let's remind you, is a former federal prosecutor, was carrying on playing footsie with a Russian spy despite being warned by the FBI. The news comes after federal agents on Wednesday raided Giuliani's home and office, seizing his electronic devices. It's part of a long-running criminal investigation into whether he acted as an unregistered foreign agent. And while Giuliani has known that he's been under federal, under federal investigation since 2019, he still managed to sound astonished. There was a big bang, bang, bang on the door. And outside were seven, seven FBI agents with a warrant. Uh, for uh, electronics. That warrant is completely illegal. The only way you can get a search warrant is if you can show that there's some evidence that the person is going to destroy the evidence or is going to or is going to run away with the evidence. Well, I've had it for two years and I haven't destroyed it. And they also got it from the iCloud. Now, of course, as a former federal prosecutor, Rudy Giuliani knows that this is how it goes. A judge signed off on that warrant, meaning that there's probably cause that a crime has been committed. Then Giuliani went on with Lil Tucker to make this very broad denial. I can tell you, I never, ever represented a foreign national. I, in fact, I have in my contracts a refusal to do it. I have never represented a Ukrainian national or official before the United States government. I've declined it several times. I've had contracts in countries like Ukraine. In the contract is a clause that says, I will not engage in lobbying or foreign representation. Giuliani says he's never represented a foreign national, but the public record shows he had plenty of unscrupulous foreign clients. According to NBC News, his international dealings appeared to blur the line between consulting and lobbying. And according to The Washington Post, he had foreign clients while he was also representing Donald Trump, while Trump was president. Not only that, but in February of 2019, Giuliani almost struck a deal 
to represent the very same Ukrainian former prosecutor who was feeding him disinformation on Joe Biden. That's the same former prosecutor who in Ukraine who wanted Trump to fire U.S. Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. And guess what? Trump did just that at Giuliani's urging. Ivanovich's ouster is now a focus for federal investigators who are trying to determine whether Giuliani acted as an unregistered foreign agent. And joining me now is Chuck Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official, and Michael Steele, former RNC chairman. And, you know, Chuck, I want to go on this first because, look, it's not as if Rudy Giuliani is, is completely, you know, un- untutored in these things. He used to be a federal prosecutor himself. So he knows good and well how you get a warrant to do a search, you know, to, to, to how you get a search warrant. Uh, what do you make of his pretense that what the um, FBI should have done was allow him to tell them what they could take, leave his iCloud alone, and he would say, well, this is the stuff you need to take. Here, take uh, these laptops that are Hunter Biden's or whatever. Yeah, complete nonsense, Joy. So let me tell your viewers how it actually works in case they want to credit anything Mr. Giuliani says. By the way, they should not. You noted that a federal judge determines whether there's probable cause that a crime has been committed and whether you're going to find the stuff that you're looking for in the place that you asked to search. That's it. When Mr. Giuliani said, well, you know, they need to be able to demonstrate that I would have destroyed evidence or uh, altered it in some way, absolutely, completely false, not part of the inquiry that the judge conducts. Moreover, the FBI would never rely on a target or a subject of an investigation uh, to give them the stuff that that target thinks they need to conduct the investigation. That's crazy, right? It's sort of what Ronald Reagan once said, trust but verify. You go out, you get the stuff you need, you do it by executing lawful search warrants authorized by a federal judge. Then, if they have questions for Mr. Giuliani, and if he wants to speak with them, they can do it on the FBI's terms when they've reviewed all of his stuff. He is a former federal prosecutor. He has no idea what he's talking about, Or he knows well enough, but he's just making it up. Right. I mean, presumably he used to go and attempt to get these same exact kinds of warrants. He knows exactly uh, he should, at least, unless maybe he's having a memory lapse. Um, Here's his son, uh, Michael, Andrew Giuliani, being put in quite a little bit of a pickle politically, being asked to choose between dear old dad and uh, the Republican Party's daddy. Would your father turn on Trump to protect himself if that's what it takes? No. I mean, he has. There is I don't really know what the how to respond to this because it's a theoretical, um, you know, my father represented the president in good faith. And I don't uh, you know, this is all theoretical. If there was yeah. something that illegal that happened, there was nothing illegal that happened. Can you make any sense of what kid who got job he didn't deserve in Trump administration has to say? No, it was very clear. He he realized that he was between his daddy and Donald <laughs> Trump, and, and it was just not a good place to be at that moment. Uh, this isn't theoretical. It's legal. And as Chuck just expertly laid out, uh, the basis for that judge's uh, you know decision to let this go forward uh, through uh, a warrant, um, there must be something there. So the question then does fall back on Mr. Giuliani. At what point does this become serious enough uh, that he decides that, well, maybe I should protect myself a little bit more because you can be damn skippy. Donald Trump is not about to protect him. (laughs) That's just not 
that's not in the card. So there does become a calculation point where um, the feds come to him and go, okay, this is what we have and we're getting more. What do you want to do? How do you want to play this? And, and I think that's, that's that moment for his son where he realizes, okay, I'm just going to step off of this ledge and try to find some <laughs> solid ground to stand on here because he knows it's not, it's not good. This does not proceed, as, as Chuck knows and as Rudy very well knows, without substance to it. And what you heard on Fox was just the Trumpian clarion call of disinformation around legalities and facts and information and warrants uh, that we've seen in the past. Um, unfortunately, you don't have the presidency to protect you here. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about someone else, because there are a lot of people who are posting and reminding folks and journalists were posting about some previous stories that seem to tie into this as well. Let's talk about Ron Johnson, um, Chuck. This is from The Washington Post. Apparently, the FBI also warned him. Um, the FBI last summer also gave what is known as a defensive briefing to Senator Ron Johnson, who used his purchase chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee to investigate Biden's dealings with Ukraine. However, Johnson said Thursday, he says there was no substance to their cautionary message. Should Ron Johnson be concerned? Because it seems that he was also in the know from the FBI and he, like Rudy, dismissed these national security concerns. Yeah, it's a great question, Joyce. So let me just give your viewers a little bit of context. Defensive briefings are not that uncommon. Let's say a businesswoman is traveling to a part of the world uh, where our adversaries would like to know what she knows or might approach her, and the FBI learns of that. They would give her a defensive briefing. So that happens fairly routinely. The really interesting thing is, what do the folks who get these defensive briefings do with that information? Overwhelmingly, what they do is they say to the FBI, thank you, understood, got it, um, I'll be careful. And then when they come back, they might debrief with the FBI to see whether or not they were approached. Overwhelmingly, people want to help and do the right thing. So the interesting question to me, Joy, is not whether or not they receive defensive briefings. Again, that happens fairly routinely. It's what do they do afterwards? How do yeah. they treat that information? Do they take it to heart or are they cavalier? And as you yeah. pointed out in your lead-in, um, Giuliani continued to meet with Russian officials and Ukrainian officials after he got the defensive briefing. Yeah, and Ron Johnson continued to peddle what turns out to be, you know, precisely along the lines of Russian disinformation afterwards as well. Let's go to uh, uh, the Gilligan to Donald Trump skipper, Matt Gates. Um, Daily Beast reports that Joel Greenberg, who's his supposed former bestie, wrote what is the strangest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life, a, def a confessional letter. Uh, in which he was trying to obtain a pardon, a confessional letter written by Joel Greenberg, according to the Daily Beast, in the final months of the Trump presidency, claims that he and close associate representative Matt Gates paid for sex with multiple women, as well as a girl who was 17 years old at the time. The letter which the Daily Beast recently obtained was a, written after Greenberg, who was under federal indictment, asked Roger Stone to help him secure a pardon from Donald Trump. Uh, Greenberg said that they believed the girl was 19 at the time, but then warned Gates, so he says, that she was actually underage. Gates has issued his same story, his sort of similar statement. While the Daily Beast story contains a lot of confessions from Mr. Greenberg, it does not add anything of substance, no evidence of the wild and false claims, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Chuck Rosenberg first and then Michael Steele. But Chuck, very quickly, have you ever heard of somebody saying, here are all my crimes, I wrote them down, can I have a pardon? Is that the way it works? Uh, this is... 
This is absolutely nuts. Uh, if Greenberg were to go to trial, you mark this letter as Exhibit 1. In fact, it makes it almost impossible for him to go to trial because he's confessed to at least this type of crime. It's just crazy, Joy. If you would do something like that, Michael Steele, you know, having worked in the Republican world, would you ever give something like that to Roger Stone? No. Let him see that. No, you know, first of all, you don't do stuff like that. But look, this Gates stuff is messy. And a lot of Republicans, there's a lot of splatter that's going to come up on this thing because, you know, this as this storyline unfolds and these confessions start coming out, where do you go as a Republican? I mean, and, and this guy is supposed to go on a road show with Marjorie Taylor Greene to go after rhinos. Well, y'all better sit your behinds back at home and figure out how you're going to pay your legal bills because you're going to have a lot of them coming. Up. Oh, that's why you're going on the road show. Yeah, oh, it's like it's yes. like their version oh. of their of, it's like Ren and Stimpy, but on the road. It yes, should be it really interesting now. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Chuck Rosenberg, Michael Steele, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton joins me to talk President Biden's first 100 days, his warning about the threat of autocracy around the world and the legal jeopardy facing her former political rival, one Rudy Giuliani, plus the travesty of democracy taking place in Arizona. More than five months since the election and after two independent reviews confirmed the results, Republican state senators forced a new bizarre fake audit of millions of ballots in Maricopa County. Now we're learning more about the company put in charge of the process, including its CEO, who reportedly pushed conspiracy theories about the election. The readout continues after this. Democrats and Republicans for generations have been, shall we say, skeptical about the ability of big government to do big things. What makes you so confident that skepticism has changed? Well, first of all, the facts don't reflect that. I don't have any inordinate faith in government, but there's certain things only the government can do. We rank number eight in the world in terms of infrastructure, for God's sake. Is the private sector going to go out and build billions of dollars worth of highways? Ports, airports, bridges, are they going to do that? And so these are things that only government can really do. President Biden was in Philadelphia today, taking it on the road after his big speech to Congress this week as he continues to sell his agenda. And integral to that agenda are two economic packages that would invest roughly $4 trillion into roads, schools, green jobs, universal pre-K, and affordable child care. To discuss that and more, I'm joined by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Thank you so much for being here, Secretary Clinton. Always great to talk to you. It's always great to talk with you, too, Joy. So I, I definitely am going to ask you, because I know that the Children's Defense Fund and, and issues regarding children are very important to you, so I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But I've got to get you, as somebody who's been a glass ceiling breaker, to comment on an image. Hopefully we can put that up where you can see it. Of the two women, the Vice President of the United States and the Speaker of the House, standing behind President Joe Biden, um, your reaction to seeing that happen? I was so happy, Joy. I saw that when I was watching the speech, of course, and I, I loved the way the president turned around, applauded them, said that it was about time. Um, it, it really was a watershed moment. I, I think it's still not sinking in on people uh, that the you know, combination of the Speaker of the House and our vice president has shattered so many barriers. And as you say, the glass ceiling, and it's just thrilling to see. 
And so back to the the, the big, very big plans that uh, President Biden has put forward. You know, you have lived through a few administrations, um, having served in them and have been in the White House for your husband's administration. What do you make of the scale of what President Biden is trying to do, the scale of what he's had to deal with with COVID and what he's trying to do on, you know, getting beyond just the COVID relief bill and these, you know, pretty huge plans and of where we've come from the Reagan era where he could even propose such a thing? Well, look, you have to govern in the time in which you find yourself. And I think that what President Biden fully understands is that the American people, having gone through COVID, having seen not only the ravages uh, that this has left with so many families and so many dead, um, but also the economic consequences that all of a sudden the American people and the polls seem to reflect this joy, uh, not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans alike are saying, you know what? You're right. We do need more from our government. We do need a bigger investment in our families, our communities, our economy, our country in terms of jobs and help for families and particularly uh, children. So I think that, um, you know, President Biden's been around a long time. And one of the advantages of having seen the ups and downs uh, is that he has a pretty good understanding of what the political uh, ecosystem will bear. And I think he's made a good bet that the people are ready for, you know, some big, bold uh, moves. And he's trying to put that forward. You, you served in the United States Senate. You also were there when President Obama tried to do some big, bold things and got um, shut down. First black president was treated quite disrespectfully in a lot of ways. Do you think that the filibuster, which has been, you know, a Jim Crow artifact um, and it's now standing in the way of Joe Biden doing big things on, uh, you know, criminal justice reform, on voting. Do you think the, the filibuster should go? And do you think that, you, that, he, that Joe Manchin and others who still cling to it can be overcome? Well, I think it should go because I think its usefulness uh, has passed us by. If there is not um, the votes to get rid of it completely, I would like to see it uh, lifted for constitutional matters, uh, in particular, um, the right to vote, how we set up and run our elections, which is really at the core uh, of everything else. Uh, so although I'm in the camp now, uh, which says, look, you know, we, we have so many problems uh, showing that we can govern ourselves. The president is absolutely right to say that this truly is a contest between democracy and autocracy, that we need to show not just ourselves, but the world that we can get things done. I would like to see it eliminated. If we don't have the votes for that, I would like to see us lift it for constitutional matters, at least. Yeah, well, let's talk about January 6th. It was such a, a jarring moment in American history. You've been the subject of conspiracy theories uh, probably your whole career, maybe even since you were at Wellesley. Um, and so can you just tell us, let, let me actually just play you a piece of sound and then get response to it. This is Officer Michael mm -hmm. Fanone, who was one of the Capitol, uh, one of the actually Metro police officers who responded to help Capitol Police. And here's what he said to Don Lemon. It's been very difficult seeing... Um, elected officials and other individuals uh, kind of whitewash the events of that day or, or uh, downplay what happened. I experienced a group of individuals that were trying to uh, kill me 
to accomplish, you know, their goal. How we managed to make it out uh, of that day without more significant loss of life is a miracle. When, when you hear people like Senator Ron Johnson downplay what happened on January 6th and the savagery that you just heard uh, Officer Fanon describe, do you see in the Republican Party a party that believes enough in democracy to be negotiated with on big things that affect the American people? Well, I think uh, they've proven uh, that uh, they are not open to negotiation because they're not open to reality in too many cases. You just mentioned one uh, trying to deny and actually substitute a totally false scenario for what we all saw with our own eyes on January 6th is indicative of how far gone they are. I mean, they've really, you know, op- they're operating in an alternative reality. However, they have votes. And so I think what uh, the Biden-Harris administration understands is you have to at least try to see whether there is a way to get the sensible members uh, of the Republican Party that are left in the Senate uh, to agree. And if they can, then then move forward, trying to figure out how much can be agreed upon and then add whatever else uh, you think uh, is needed. But if that's not going to happen, if we're going to see this kind of, uh, you know, charade played out, uh, then I think that uh, President Biden knows he has to move forward without them, uh, as he did with the American Rescue Plan. Indeed. Uh, Speaking of Republicans, if I can get you a little bit on some news of the day, uh, you ran uh, for Senate before he dropped out uh, against Rudy Giuliani, the then mayor of New York. What do you make of his current travails? I don't know, Joy. I mean, he's been behaving so erratically and seem seemingly illegally for so long now. Uh, I don't have any inside information. I'll let uh, the justice system work. I don't feel like, you know, I should be you know, commenting and, and trying to judge what is going on. But clearly there's a serious investigation underway. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to him. I don't You know, I had my political disagreements with him, certainly uh, when he was, you know, mayor of New York and when I uh, began running against him for the Senate. I don't recognize him now. I I don't know what's gotten into him. uh, And we'll see what the investigation uh, concludes. Well, I have to say, some of us who noticed uh, the way he ran against David Dinkins and the things he did at the time, we recognize him quite well. Uh, Let let me go to a couple foreign policy questions. The Navalny um, situation, um, the only real opponent um, of Vladimir Putin has been jailed. He was on a hunger strike. His party, they're attempting to turn into, you know, label it as a terrorist organization. How what do you make of the way that the current president is dealing with Russia? Do you think that we need to come down harder on that country, given that they interfered in our election, the one that you were in, potentially helped cost you the election and continue to interfere in 2020 and what they're doing to Mr. Navalny. Well, the administration has imposed sanctions, which I absolutely approve of. And they have also made some very tough comments about uh, what Putin is doing on the border with Ukraine, uh, his Uh, continuing interference in other democracies. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot to uh, worry about uh, because of his behavior. The issue concerning Mr. Navalny, though, is particularly troubling because, as you rightly point out, 
Uh, he is the face of the opposition. He represents millions of Russians who deserve to have uh, a better government uh, that is actually, you know, working to move Russia forward, which Putin is not. And so I would hope that not only our uh, leadership and uh, not only the White House, but also the Congress and in many other uh, settings would be speaking out uh, very uh, forcefully about uh, the need to protect uh, the life and give uh, an opportunity to Mr. Navalny to, you know, get out of jail where he's been put on phony charges, uh, try to support his organization and his colleagues, even his lawyers who are now under tremendous uh, pressure by Putin. And I hope yeah. that that's a, a general uh, plea across the world, because what's happening is just outrageous. My final question, uh, we've, we're, we're almost out of time, but are you comfortable with the timetable for the U.S. to get out of Afghanistan, where we've been for 20 years? Look, it's a wicked problem. Um, I, I think you could argue uh, whatever point you want to make about um, what's happened. But, you know, the president made the decision that he thought was the right decision. I'm just going to be you know, very focused on what happens to the people, particularly the women in Afghanistan, if the Taliban come back into power, if the government collapses. And I hope that our government, along with NATO allies and others, will be doing everything we can to help get those people most at risk out of harm's way, get them out of Afghanistan, deal with what I expect to be a very large refugee flow, and then protect ourselves from the return of al-Qaeda uh, the Islamic State, because the Taliban has never rejected al-Qaeda. And so the possibility that they could uh, once again plot against us from uh, safety in Afghanistan is a, uh, a big concern. And I know that, you know, the president and his advisors are focused on that as well. Secretary, former Secretary Hillary Clinton, such a broad amount of knowledge. I could do this for another hour, but we are out of time. Thank you very much, uh, Madam Secretary. Really appreciate you being here. Always glad to talk to you, Joy. Thanks. Thank you very much. And still ahead. All right. How do we go about fixing America's broken policing system? Well, our next guest has some ideas on that, and she's hoping to bring those ideas with her to the United States Senate. Former North Carolina Chief Justice and Senate candidate Sherry Beasley joins me next. of Micaiah Bryant gathered for a celebration of her life today. A cousin remembered the 16-year-old whose future was cut short when she was shot and killed by Columbus police last week. Say her name as a reminder of the loving, kind person she was. Ask yourselves, what are you doing to make sure no more Micaiahs are taken from us? Underscoring the tragic reality of too many black lives lost at the hands of police, the mother of Breonna Taylor was in attendance for the service. And on Monday, yet another black family will celebrate the life of a loved one taken too soon. Andrew Brown Jr. will be remembered in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. The Reverend Al Sharpton will deliver the eulogy. Relatives of George Floyd and Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, will also attend. More than a week since Brown was shot and killed by Pasquotank County Sheriff's deputies, there is still a lack of transparency around his death. 
On Thursday, the sheriff identified the deputies involved in the shooting. The four, he said, didn't fire their weapons, have been reinstated to active duty. The three deputies who the sheriff said opened fire are still on administrative leave. The district attorney claimed in court earlier this week that the body cam showed Brown's car hit deputies, prompting them to open fire. But since a judge denied a request to release the footage earlier this week, we can't actually verify that claim. And I'm joined now by Sherry Beasley, Democratic U.S. Senate candidate in North Carolina and former chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, the first black woman to lead that state's highest court. And Judge Beasley, thank you so much for being here. And I want to start on that on that topic of the law in North Carolina. The police are now making claims about what happened and what Andrew Brown might have done, but their claims stand without evidence to back them up because they can hide behind this law that says we don't get to see the body cam footage. Do you believe that the law in North Carolina that is very protective of police is unfair to victims? You know, Joy, thank you so much for having me this evening. And, uh, you know, I'm really honored to be on your show and to be running for the United States Senate. If I could just tell you just a little bit about why I'm running first, and then I'll answer your question. Um, You know, I, I was raised by a mom who taught me to stand for what's right and that no door of opportunity would ever be closed to me. Through hard work and faith, I served as a judge uh, in North Carolina for 22 years, and I knew it was important that every person who came before my courtroom be treated fairly. There are so many challenges around what's happening in North Carolina. Um, So many folks are left behind by Washington. I really want to fight for the people of North Carolina to make sure that they have access to good health care and education and People want to be able to take care of their families. And so I certainly want to make sure that there are good jobs uh, coming to North Carolina. We've been in a pandemic, but we were challenged in North Carolina before that time. I want to make sure that no door of opportunity is closed to anyone. But I also understand the very challenge that you raise uh, this evening. And that's why I'm running for the United States Senate. You know, the reality is uh, transparency is so important. And I offer my deepest sympathies to the family of Andrew Brown Jr. uh, and to the family and communities uh, in Elizabeth City. Uh, There has been a grave injustice uh, that the full camera video footage has not been released to this family and to the community. And, And the reality is the standard has to be transparency. The standard has to be accountability and the and the and the standard has to be trust. I mean, it's important for there to be. Uh, trust around uh, instances where there has been law enforcement misconduct and accountability and a process around that that people can trust and believe in. And in this instance, the fact that 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 the community and this family have not seen the full video is, is a real travesty. And if you were to be elected to the United States Senate, you know, you would then be in a position to vote on things like the George Floyd Act. Just as you look at the way that criminal justice reform is proceeding in the United States Senate right now, do you think it's enough for as a former judge, when you look at these potential changes to the law on a federal level, do you think that they go far enough? I certainly believe that uh, there must be federal criminal justice reform and federal standards around what's right. Um, it, it makes so much sense that 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 chokeholds must be banned and other procedures that we see happening in, in, in communities across the state, across the nation. And, and the reality is 
you know, lives are valuable and, and we've got to figure out some kind of standard and procedures that offer transparency uh, for communities to ha have trust, uh, for there to be reasonable relations between law enforcement and communities. Um, and, and there has to be a way in order to proceed yeah. to make sure that 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 lives are saved. Very quickly, you um, I'm going to put up the margin uh, by which you were not um, reelected as chief justice. It was very small. We're talking like 400 something votes. So you have proven that you, you can run statewide and you can win statewide. How do you do it? Uh, we're going to play a little bit of your video, um, that you, your launch video as you answer for us. How are you going to win in a state like North Carolina for the United States Senate? What's your strategy? You know, I'm thankful that this was my third election statewide and my fifth election totally. And I'm thankful that I've been able to run some successful statewide elections. And um, I'm thankful that we'll be building on those relationships that um, meeting people and building our relationships across this state that I've already formed will be so important. Outreach will be critical. And we're really excited about the interest in my very few days since I've launched this campaign that we've received from the people of North Carolina. Yeah, well, good luck. There are currently no black women in the United States Senate. So I know there's a lot of interest in your campaign. Please keep us posted. You're welcome back anytime. I appreciate it, Joy. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, Judge, Judge Sherry Beasley, keep an eye on her. Before we go, an update on a story that we've been following here on The Readout. Chicago's police oversight agency said today that it found significant deficiencies in the wrongful police raid on social worker Anjanette Young in February of 2019. Police broke into her apartment and forced her to stand naked and handcuffed as she insisted accurately that they had the wrong house. She spoke emotionally about the ordeal on the readout last December. In that very moment, um, I was terrified. Um, I tell people that I was um, scared into compliance. I was afraid to move because in that moment, I thought if I did anything out of the ordinary, that they would shoot me. I mean, the guns were pointed and drawn and I was fearful for my life. Ooh, uh, we will continue to follow this story. And up next, Trump's big lie was a terrible thing. But even worse is how Republican politicians are using the big lie to push new voting restrictions. But that, believe it or not, is not the absolute worst, which tonight involves something truly bizarre that's going down in Arizona as we speak. Stay with us. Nearly six months after losing the election, Donald Trump has struck again. His supporters have orchestrated the latest charade aimed at dismantling the single most important feature of our democracy, the right of voters to choose our leaders. That charade is now on display in Phoenix, Arizona, where, as you can see from these live camera feeds, a fake so-called audit is underway to recount the 2.1 million ballots cast in Arizona's largest county. And keep in mind that Arizona already had two full-on actual recounts after the November election. Well, this fakey version is costing taxpayers $150,000, with access seemingly only granted to the Trump-fawning news channel, One America News Network, unless reporters agree to participate in the make-believe audit as observers. This is what happened when one of our reporters tried to gain access. Hi, sir. How are you doing? I'm not authorized to speak to the We're with NBC. We're hoping to cover as journalists what's happening I'm, here inside. I'm not authorized to speak to the press. Or, or are you with the audit, though? I'm not authorized to speak to the press. These guys said they would be able to talk to you about getting in as journalists. There's a media area. 
for media. We're allowed to be in that area, in that area only, not the building. Trump lost to President Biden in Maricopa County, yet none of that matters to those committed to Trump's big lie. And that includes the very person hired to supposedly audit the ballots. Doug Logan, CEO of the Cyber Ninjas, who has reportedly advanced election fraud theories online. And yes, you heard that right. A far past the sell by date review of our presidential election is currently being led by a group called the Cyber Ninjas. You really can't make it up. And those cyber ninjas, well, they have tools in their cyber ninja kits, like ultraviolet lights, a feature Trump is particularly interested in, which should also come as no surprise as his COVID quackery once included blasting the body with ultraviolet light from the inside as a way to eradicate the coronavirus. According to internal documents, these lights are being used to hunt for so-called, quote, fraud. The firm is also so concerned about Antifa attacks that they requested National Guard protection, which the Republican governor of Arizona, of course, declined. Now, this may appear as the last dying gasps of an election lie, but the consequences are actually very quite real and dire, cementing a path that allows Republicans to baselessly contest any outcome that they don't happen to like. It's costing you money while chipping away at press freedoms. And that is why Trump and his cult members' ongoing effort to defile American democracy is the absolute worst. And up next, how the big lie is energizing a spree of voter suppression laws. The latest one advancing in Florida, thanks to the wannabe little Trump of Tallahassee. Stay with us. Back in February, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, whose battleground state cast its 29 votes for Donald Trump, had this to say about the election. Florida had the most transparent and efficient election anywhere in the country. Now you heard that, right? Well, moments later, at that exact same press conference, DeSantis would go on to announce his plans to make it harder for Floridians to vote. Plans that have almost finalized with Florida advancing a new Georgia light restrictive voting bill that DeSantis is expected to sign. The bill includes restrictions on drop boxes and who can collect and drop off ballots. It will also require voters to request absentee ballots for each election. And joining me now is Don Calloway, founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund and somebody whose presence I have been coveting. I watch you on Al with Alex Witt frequently, so I've been coveting you from afar. So thank you for being here with me. Let's talk about Florida. Thank you very much. I worked on a couple elections in Florida. And the thing that I learned from those elections is that Republicans, they, they just kill it in absentee. They beat us in 2004 invisibly because they got all the absentee. Does it make any sense to you in a state with the most seniors, a state where people really use absentee, where Republicans win on it for them to gut the absentee ballot process? No, it doesn't. But it does make sense if you consider it in the larger context of these massive nationwide voter suppression initiatives that Republicans nationwide are embarked upon. If you can cut down on absentee ballots as a tool for Democratic organizing, then you're willing to sacrifice the Republican absentees because it wipes out the Democratic absentees as well. You combine that with voter ID. You combine that with the terrible line warming stuff in which you take out all of the ability to give people food and water for waiting in line. You combine that with taking away so many of the expanded ballot box protections that were given because of COVID, 
Right. You take you combine it together and then you eliminate enough Democratic votes. You restrict voting, voting access and ease of access to white suburban upper middle class and middle class voters. And then you're left with a subset of people who are more likely to vote Republican. So they're willing to sacrifice some of their absentees in favor of getting the larger number altogether in their column. You know, and, and it's so important that you say that, right? Because they loved absentees until they found that black people could use them too. They're like, oh, we got to get rid of that. Absolutely. And that's the thing. Like, I run, I run campaigns, so a big part of any aggressive progressive strategy has got to be an absentee uh, campaign. And Democrats have found that out over the last 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing about Florida that is interesting is that it's seen as, to me, I see it as just basically kind of Alabama 2.0. It's very Republican, but it's barely, it's a state that's still very close. President Obama did win it twice. Clinton won it once. Ron DeSantis only barely won it. He won by 0.4. So it's a state that even though Republicans sort of dominate it right now politically, not even sort of, it is still close. I want to play you. This is cut one for my producers. I feel like this is one of the motivations for what they're doing right now. Take a look at this. You could be running for governor of Florida or um, for the U.S. Senate from Florida. True. Are you thinking about it? I am seriously considering running, Jonathan. I have received calls and texts and messages from people all over the state asking me to run because they feel that they are not represented. I noticed that you didn't specify which office. You're thinking of either one. That's absolutely correct. Rick Scott won by 0.2. Ron DeSantis won by 0.4. Which is the bigger nightmare for Republicans if that lady runs for governor or Senate? I think both are especially nightmares for Republicans because she's a legitimate threat to win both. Remember, Andrew Gillum barely lost and there was some voter fraud substantially there. Uh, Barack Obama won the state. Uh, You could even argue that going back in 2000, Democrats won the state, although it was given to them by the secretary of state then. If Florida were not eminently competitive for Democrats, you would not see Republicans doing this stuff. Yes, they're doing it nationwide, but it's particularly important in Florida because it is extraordinarily competitive for Democrats, particularly if you have a dynamic and qualified candidate of color like former police chief, current Congressman Val Deming, Congresswoman, excuse me, Val Demings. So they're doing this because as an as an immediate response to the idea that Florida is competitive. Seniors are moving there from up north from New York who are more likely to vote Democratic. And this is an immediate response to that. It is voter suppression in its most blatant and pernicious form. What do you make of the way that the Florida Republicans are acting? I mean, they're doing anti-trans kids bills. They're doing, yeah. you know, they, they, they've, they've gone all the way hard right. Is that a winning strategy? Is that because the people who are moving to Florida tend to be like Donald Trump and people like him? Is that what they're playing to? I'm not exactly sure. And, you know, if you Google the term Florida man, I think that we would all agree that you find it wise not to try to put too much time and stock into thinking about what folks in Florida are down there thinking about. Right. So it's not really clear. But I will say that this is part of a larger national Republican strategy. It's funded and controlled by ALEC. It is not unique to Florida. We thought it was unique to Georgia. And I think we need to highlight the idea that this is nationwide. Republican strategy across the country is racism and voter suppression. 
therefore they don't have to compete based upon the merits of their ideas, which don't win. People don't want trans kids and gay kids and the LGBTQIA plus community to be oppressed. People want to fund Medicare and Medicaid programs. So rather than have to compete on the merits of those ideas, which is not where the American public is, let's just keep substantial portions of the Floridian and American public, particularly black and brown and poor folks from voting. That is the national Republican electoral strategy. And I'm so glad that we have platforms like yours to call attention to it. Thank you very much. And you know what? They're going to find out that there's a, such a thing as a backlash the other way, because young folks Absolutely. and people of color in Florida, it's not like they're just going to sit down and take it. You're trying to make these hoops you know, bigger and higher. People are going to not only jump through, they're going to they're going to succeed sometimes. So uh, Don Calloway, thanks for finally being on the show. <laughs> Welcome to the readout family. Really appreciate you. Uh, and thank, thank you. you for Cheers. And before we go, a quick programming note. NBC is launching a new series, Inspiring America, highlighting extraordinary people making a positive impact in their communities. The 2021 Inspiration List features Lin-Manuel Miranda, Bubba Wallace, Jose Andres, and more. Inspiring America will air tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern on NBC and on Sunday, May 2nd, right here on MSNBC at 10 p.m. Eastern. And that is the readout tonight. 